we have been encouraged to give thanks to God because he has given us his son. In the next few moments, we are going to be encouraged to open the Bibles and hear from the one who has given us his son. I encourage you to open God's word to the book of Isaiah. We'll be reading from chapter 32, verse 1, to the end of the chapter, verse 20. Isaiah, chapter 32, we'll be reading from verse 1 to the very end, verse 20. If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, uh, you may find uh, this passage uh, in our pew Bibles, the Bibles providing the chairs in front of you, on page number 592. We're reading Isaiah, chapter 32, verse 1. Here's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness. And princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm. Like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed, and the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. The fool will no more be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. For the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity. To practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. But he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice. You, complacent daughters, give ear to my speech. In a little more than a year, you will shudder, you complacent women. For the grape harvest fails, the fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Shudder, you complacent ones. Strip and make yourselves bare and tie sackcloth around your waist. Beat your breast for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people growing up in the thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city. For the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted. The hill and the watchtower will become dens forever. A joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. Until, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high. And the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in a fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation in secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. And it will hail when the forest falls down, and the city will be utterly laid low. Happy are you who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you bow your heads in prayer, asking the Lord to bless 
uh, the preaching of God's word. Father, we thank you for the word that you reveal to us so that we may understand your ways with us. Would you speak to our hearts words of life, words of restoration. We pray that our hearts will be rekindled to understand your ways and to respond to you. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Friends, the passage we have before us is part of a message of woe. Uh, the woe that began in chapter 31. If you were with us two Sundays ago when we worked through the previous uh, two chapters, uh, you remember that we are in a, set, in, a, in a time of Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah, uh, where the prophet gives these messages of, of warning, of woes to God's people. The, the passage we read today is part of one of these messages of woes. And if we go to the very beginning of this message of woe in chapter 31, verse 1, we understand what was going on. What is God warning his people about? Uh, let's read just as a review, 31.1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. God exposed the sin of his people, the sin of turning away from the Lord and seeking help from the Egyptians instead to solve their crisis. Instead of turning to God for help, they relied on human strength. And the Egyptians offered the human strength that the people of Judah wanted to rely on. Friend, I wonder if you realize that just mere that, that change of direction on what we rely upon is a sign of rebellion against the Lord if we choose to turn from the Lord and rely on human strength. And the Lord exposes that sin in this, in this message of woe. In Isaiah 31 verse 4, Isaiah presented God as a defender of his people, as a fearless lion. And chapter 31 ended with a promise that God will, will wipe away the Assyrians with a sword not of man. In other words, the Israelites would not need to fight in this battle. God was able to fight the Assyrians off without needing any help from his people. That sounded like a great promise. If only God's people would actually believe and trust in God's promises. It's always easier, it is always easier to rely on what we ourselves can do, isn't it? It's harder to depend on someone else and you don't know exactly how that person um, will carry things out. And especially when we deal with God's promises, sometimes we may feel and be concerned, what if God doesn't do it my way? So why don't I do it and just rely on what I can do? In chapter 32, Isaiah continues, God through Isaiah continues this, this aim of trying to woo his people away from relying on themselves and turn back to the Lord. Isaiah, in Isaiah 32, God says that he will not only defeat his enemies, 
uh, or the enemies of his people, but that God will give them a new king with a new reign. In other words, God promises them not only freedom from enemies, God also promises them a change of internal leadership so that God's people will be led well and cared well. If only they would trust what God says. So let's look at this second half of this message of woe uh, in chapter 32. Let's look at this text and see how God seeks to woo his people back to himself. He's going to give a warning that is going to be sandwiched between two promises. So there's going to be a warning in the middle of the chapter that is sandwiched between two promises. Let's start with the first promise. What does God communicate to his people as he tries to woo them back to himself? Here's the first point. A glorious kingdom awaits those who trust in the Lord. A glorious kingdom awaits those who trust in the Lord. Look at the promise of chapter 32, verse 1. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. Now, earlier in Isaiah, we have already seen the promise of this king. In Isaiah 9, if you're with us earlier in earlier months, in Isaiah 9, we read, For to us a child is born, to us a child, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness for this time forth and forevermore. That was chapter 9. Now in chapter 32, we are given again a glimpse of what that reign will accomplish when this king will be placed on the throne. And what will God's people be like in that kingdom? In verses 2 through 8, we will see three characteristics about this glorious reign and the kingdom that God promised to bring about through this king. What will be be, uh, that reign like and that kingdom like? Here's three characteristics of what that kingdom uh, will be like. The reign will provide, the reign of that king, that kingdom, will provide safety and provision. Notice a few pictures in verse 2. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade uh, do a great rock in a weary land. These are images of protection and provision. Think about it. A hiding place from the wind a shelter from the storm. These are pictures of safety. Then if we move on to the next pictures, having a water supply in a dry place and, and, and having a rock in a weary land are pictures of provision in the midst of dryness and heat. Well, these pictures of, of safety and provision describe not just the king of the kingdom, but describe the executives of this king, those who will be in the administration of this new kingdom. Notice the word, each will be like. 
Now, who's each? It's the rulers, the princes who will be governing under this, this king. In other words, it's not going to be just a change of, of, of the king, but of his entire administration. And every person in the administration of this new king will be like a place of safety, will be like a place of provision. I love how one commentator said, instead of being exploited by their rulers, the common people will be defended and cared for by them. Now, friends, can you think of any human governments where all the government officials, all of them, will act this way? Even when the president of your choice makes it to be in the government, it does not mean that everybody underneath him will be perfect. Even should he be perfect. And first of all, there's no one who will act this way all the time. But here God promises a new government with a new king and all his administrators underneath him to act as if they were places of safety and provision. The administration of this glorious kingdom will be characterized by leaders who care well for the people of the kingdom. They will be like places of safety and refreshment for the weary. Such is the kingdom and the reign of this promised king. The new reign will also be characterized not only by, by a particular kind of administration. The new kingdom, the new reign, will be per- characterized by permanent spiritual discernment and spiritual health. If, if we saw four pictures that characterize the administration of this new reign, uh, the next few verses, verse 3 and on, present us four descriptions or four areas that will be affected in people's lives as a result of this new reign. Notice four areas that will be affected in people's lives by the effect of this new reign. And it's not going to be financial benefits. Here's what's going to change. Here's what's going to be affected. Their eyes, their ears, their hearts, and their tongue. Look at verse 3. The eyes of those who see will not be closed. And the ears of those who hear will give attention. Now, why would this be a big deal? Why would this be a big change that would be brought about through this new kingdom? Well, do you remember the the problem in Isaiah's time? When Isaiah was commissioned by the Lord to go and, and, and start his ministry? How did God describe his people's spiritual state? As blind, as deaf. And God commissioned Isaiah to go and have a ministry of further hardening. God said, go and tell these people, see, but you will not see. Hear, but you will not understand. Against this reality of blindness and deafness, the new reign is characterized by a reversal of their situation and the promise of a permanent spiritual discernment. Their eyes will continue to see. Their ears will continue to hear and understand. They will continue to be spiritually alert and spiritually healthy. God's people will begin giving attention to the Word of God. Friends, one of the characteristics of the reign of this promised king is that the hardening of the heart will be put away. In some ways, dear friends, 
this promise began to be fulfilled, but it's not fully manifested. We're still waiting for the time when the reign of Christ will eradicate all hardening from the hearts of God's people. This is one of the reasons why we as a church are encouraging one another regularly to give attention to the word of the Lord. One of the greatest callings that we have as a, as a congregation is to gather together to hear the word of God and to pay attention to what God tells us. And we want not merely to hear the word, but we want to respond to the word. A characteristic of the reign of Christ. Dear friends, a characteristic of the reign of Christ among us is our increasing growth in paying attention to God's word so that we would not grow to be dull or blinded or deaf at the hearing of God's word. The spiritual discernment that God promised is also described in verse 4. Look at verse 4, the picture that we have. So we saw the eyes, we saw the ears. Look at verse 4. The heart of the hasty will understand and know. The heart of the hasty. In Isaiah, the hasty are the people who are opposite of those who are quiet in the presence of the Lord. The hasty are those who act quickly without asking the Lord. They don't understand what God has to say, and they don't want to wait to hear what God has to say. They just go quickly to do their things. So they are hurried in carrying out their plans, and God promises that when the new king will bring about his administration, will bring about his reign, the hasty people will begin understanding and knowing the word of the Lord. The spiritual discernment that God promised is described by a fourth characteristic. It will affect how people communicate. They will begin communicating clearly in, in ways that they will understand each other. Now, the reign of this promised king will affect people's inner beings, how people see, how they hear, how people are slow to pay attention to the word of the Lord and how they speak. Now, friends, let's, let's back out a little bit. Can you tell me of any earthly government, of any earthly kingdom that will have this kind of power over people to affect them internally in what they see, in what they hear, in their hearts, and in their tongues. No human government has that power. There is no program that the government can put together that's going to affect people internally. And yet this is what the government of the king that God promises. This is what it will do. The third characteristic of this future king is that it will restore what is right and wrong. It will expose the foolishness of what, it is, what, what is foolish and will expose what is truly noble. People will no longer call fools as nobles. In verse 5, we see the third characteristic of, this, of, this, of what this kingship, what this reign will accomplish. The fool will no longer be called noble, nor the scoundrel be said, said to be honorable. In verses 6 to 7, we have a quick description of the fools so that we know who are truly the fools. For the fool speaks folly 
and his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. In these verses, we see a description of what a fool is or who a fool is. His heart is affected and set on ungodliness. His mouth is set on speaking error about God. And his actions ignore to take care of the needs of others. The scoundrel is similar. He intentionally plans to ruin the poor with lying words. Friends, in the new kingdom that God promises, people will no longer be able to define wrong as right. They will no longer be able to honor the foolish as if they were worthy of honor. Friends, today in our society, we feel hopeless. We might feel hopeless that we live in a society that continues to grow in calling evil good, in calling what is foolish, noble, and right. And friends, we will see more and more of that. But the new administration that God promises to give his people the, the characteristic of that is it will call right right and wrong wrong. It will expose what is truly foolish. So far, dear friends, this is how God describes the kingdom that he, that he promises to give his people when this new king will come. If only God's people will trust the promises of God. This future reign will be, will be characterized by a safe and resourceful Leadership, it be characterized by permanent spiritual discernment, and it will restore what is right, what is wrong. Well, this sounds like a great promise. Wanting to sign up for it, wanting to be a part of this kingdom, and I hope that you are. But starting with verse 9 in our passage, the change, the, 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 the tone of the passage changes from this glorious promise of a glorious kingdom to the stark reality of what was going on among the people of Judah at the time this prophecy was given. Here's point two of Isaiah's woe. Great danger awaits the complacent. Great danger awaits the complacent. Starting with verse 9, God calls the women of Judah to rise up and pay attention to God, what God was going to tell them. Look at verse 9. Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. God wants his people to pay attention to the warning of the great danger that is coming upon them. In verse 10, God says, In a little more than a year, you will shudder, you complacent women. Their destruction is right around the corner. God was gracious to warn them of their imminent danger so that it would not catch them by surprise if they would only listen to the word of God that he spoke concerning their situation. But they didn't. I wonder if you noticed how God describes these women in these verses. Verse 9, rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Verse 10, God describes these women again as you complacent women. In verse 11, God calls them to tremble and shudder and describes them again, you women who are at ease and as complacent ones. Did you pick up on the repetition of these phrases? Being at ease? Being complacent? Friends, 
being at ease when danger was imminent is not a good virtue. They were being at ease about their imminent danger because they did not believe the word of God. God sent them the prophets to warn them of the coming danger, but they didn't pay attention to it. They were complacent. They did not act upon what they heard from God's prophets. God warned his people by speaking to their women. Now, why the women? Why not all of them? I Honestly, I don't know. It's possible that uh, here he's speaking to the women because their attitudes, the attitudes of the women, was a characteristic of the entire society. We know earlier in Isaiah that God spoke directly to women before. So it's possible simply that by speaking to women, God is actually wanting to point out the attitude of the entire society. Their attitudes, the attitudes of the women, were being at ease and complacent. I wonder, dear friend, if you realize that an attitude of complacency or being at ease is a sign of not paying attention to God's word. Or we could say the, the opposite. Not paying attention to God's word is a sign of being complacent about God. How do you spot complacency? How do you spot complacency? How do you know you have it? Or are you in danger of developing it? Well, do you pay attention to God's word? Do you read it? Do you read it on your own? And if you do read it, do you pay attention to what it says? Do you consider what God speaks to you through his word and seek to apply it to your life? In Zephaniah 1.12, God says through the prophet Zephaniah, and I will punish the men who are complacent. So women, just in case you think that it's just speaking against you, in Zephaniah, God speaks against the men as well. So don't feel like you have, we have a gender uh, difference here. God says, I will punish, punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. The complacent neither place their trust in God's provisions, nor are they afraid of his warnings. Complacency and being at ease are spiritual red flags that need to be confronted. Complacent people are self-sufficient. They put more stock in their own understanding or they're in their own self-assessment rather than in God's assessment. Complacent people care more about their opinions than God's ways. They might know what God says, but they think their way is actually better. That's why they continue to stay on their own path rather than God's path. Complacent people are self-secure. They have a false sense of security. They think that they will be okay when in reality they are not. Complacent people have a false confidence in things that will not last. Friends, the Lord in this passage speaks against the complacency and the false sense of ease that his people had. God seeks to awaken them to the devastation that was coming upon them. Friends, complacent people are no longer hearing the warnings that God has in his word. So ask yourself, when was the last time that you took to heart the warnings that God has in his word? Consider that carefully. The warnings of the coming devastation are important for us to hear. But in God's providence, they're not the only thing that we get to hear. In point three of this passage, the third part of this text, 
moves on from the first promise to the middle warning and finally to the third part, which is another promise. A glorious restoration is promised through God's Spirit. A glorious restoration is promised through God's Spirit. In the last part of the chapter we read, God tells his people that the devastation they will experience is not the end. God has planned to restore his people and to revive their well-being. God assures them that out of their devastation, God can still bring about a glorious restoration. Now notice what will be the agent of this restoration. What will cause this great uh, restoration? In verse 15, it's a pouring out of the Holy Spirit, of God's Spirit. Look at verse 15. Until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high. In other words, the Spirit of God will be the hinge that will reverse this devastation. When the Spirit will be poured out on people, a great change will take place on God's people. A glorious reversal, a glorious restoration. Psalm 104.30 says a similar truth. When you send forth your Spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. Friends, the sending out of the Spirit of God is the means by which we have life. It is the means by which God renews the earth. Now, let this truth sink in. The mere pouring out of the Spirit has such power that it reverses the devastation on the earth. God doesn't need equipment. God doesn't need government programs. God doesn't need FEMA or other programs to restore the devastation. All that God needs to, pour, to, to restore the earth is to pour out His Spirit, and His Spirit has creation powers to bring life and to restore that which has been broken. This work of restoration that the Spirit causes is illustrated in two images in verse 15. In verse 15, we see the image of the wilderness becoming a fruitful field. Just think of that extreme opposite. From wilderness to a fruitful field. That's what the Holy Spirit is able to do when He's going to restore the devastation of the earth. The change will be that opposite. The change will be that clear. But also, look at the second picture. And the fruitful field is deemed a forest. The second picture describes the restoration that looks at a fruitful field. And when God's Spirit will restore the earth, what you thought was going to be a fruitful field will pale in comparison to the grandness of what God will actually do. And you will feel like that fruitful field is more like a forest that just grows wild. Because God's restoration will so exceed our expectations that what we might imagine to be a fruitful field will actually be considered as a forest. I love how one of the commentators described this picture. What was now valued as a fruit garden would be thrown into the shade by something far more glorious still in comparison to which it would have the appearance of a forest in which everything grew wild. The point of this picture, dear friends, is that God's power, when He 
comes to restore his creation, his restoration will far exceed any of our expectations. In the New Testament, we see this characteristic of God in the book of Ephesians, in the prayer that Paul prays. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power that has worked within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God is a God who is able to, to do far more than exceed, that would exceed any of our expectations. Some of you might wonder, well, it's not happening yet. I'm still waiting for God to work some things and, and, and my expectations are not, I haven't seen them yet. Friends, these promises that God makes are promises when his full reign will be fully manifested. We are still at a time in which his reign is taking over, the reign of darkness. But a time will come when all these promises will be fully executed and they will far exceed any of our expectations. Look at verse 16, how God continues to describe what will, what will that kingdom look like. Verse 16, justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. In other words, God's justice and restoration and righteousness will be affecting even the wilderness. Every part of the earth will be permeated with God's justice, with God's righteousness. Even the unpopulated areas, such as the wilderness, will be affected. Friends, if you're not a Christian, you may understand the notion of justice. And you may want for that to happen. We long for an earth where justice dwells all over the place. But righteousness? This may be a foreign concept. What is the meaning of, of righteousness? Righteousness means being right with God, our Creator. The reason why there's so much injustice in our world is because humanity is no longer right with the one who made us. And because of that, we, humanity, are working against each other. We are self-destructing. Because of our rebellion, none of us are right with God. Because of our rebellion, we are often not right with one another. None of us are right with God. Yet the great news that God offers us is that He sent His only Son, Jesus, to be the one through whom people can be counted right, can be counted righteous before God. If we look ahead to Isaiah 53, there's a, there are two verses that speak about what the servant of the Lord will do. In Isaiah 53, 10 and 11, we are told, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, the servant. He was put to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his day. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. In other words, Isaiah tells us, how is it that rebellious people who are not right with God, can be counted right with their Creator. It is through Jesus, the one who came to bear our iniquities. 
Oh, friend, it is only through Christ that we can be counted and declared righteous before God. If you're not a Christian, God calls us, God calls you, God calls, commands everyone to turn away from living life apart from God and trust in Christ, rely on His sacrifice, so that through His sacrifice we can be counted righteous in the sight of God. If you'd like to know more about what that means, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. Where one God will restore the devastated earth, even the wilderness and the fruitful fields will be filled with righteousness. And notice what will be the effect of that righteousness. In verse 17, we see three effects of righteousness. Verse 17, and the effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. In other words, the presence of righteousness will affect people. It will affect their relationships. It will affect their inner beings. They will experience peace, quietness, and trust. Friends, peace, quietness, and trust are fruits of being right with God. If this morning you are lacking in peace, in quietness, in trust, ask yourself if there's an area in your life that is not right with a living God. These, quiet, these qualities of peace, quietness, and trust are not gained through our personal effort, nor are they gained when we choose to go on vacation. It's not about taking a break and going out in nature that we'll get more peace of this kind or more quietness of this kind. We don't gain these, these effects of peace, quietness, and trust by engaging in spiritual uh, exercises of like yoga or, or Eastern spiritual things that just promise some sort of inner calmness. That is not how we gain these qualities. The Bible says that we gain the qualities of peace, quietness, and trust as a result of the righteousness that God gives us. If you lack in these areas, seek first the righteousness of God. True security, true peace, true rest, true reliance on God comes to us as we fight against the temptation to be complacent and seek instead to seek the righteousness of God by His grace. Friends, don't confuse complacency with true rest or true peace or true trusting in God. But before the peace and quietness and, and trusting can be fully experienced for the people of God, in verse 20, 19 and 20, God gives them and summarizes the warning and the promise once again. In verse, 20, in verse 19, we see this picture. It will hail when the forest falls down and the city will be utterly laid low. You wonder, after this great promise, why is, why is the prophet coming back to this verse that speaks about the forest falling down, the city being utterly laid low? I love how one commentator says, only those who come to terms with the wrath of God can enter the promised glory. Only those who come to terms with the wrath of God can enter the promised glory. Being aware of God's future judgment protects us from growing complacent in the present. Experiencing God's peace, quietness, and trust happens only when we first take seriously His judgment and wrath. 
This is counterintuitive. We think that we can experience peace and quietness if we don't think about judgment and wrath. Right? But in God's book, it's only those who, it's only those who take seriously God's warnings can come to understand and appreciate the peace and the rest and the quietness that God promises through his son Jesus. In other words, in God's book, the way to his peace and rest takes us first to see his judgment and wrath. Judgment and wrath against our rebellion. And once we come to grips with that reality, we can become partakers of the rest that God offers us through Jesus his son. Verse 20 ends with a pronouncement of blessedness. Blessed are you who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. These pictures of a farmer who lets his animals grow or, or roam around freely is a messianic picture that was given earlier in chapter 30. It's a picture of describing what the messianic kingdom will be like when God will restore all things. Here the prophet is pronouncing a blessedness on all those who will make it through the judgment, who will make it through the punishment and will be partakers of the benefits of the messianic kingdom. Oh, friends, we have considered three truths about God's reign and restoration. And these truths are real. These truths must be, must be considered together. And these truths are the following. A glorious kingdom awaits those who trust in the Lord. That's a great promise. The next one is a great warning. Great danger awaits the complacent. So awaken from your complacency. The third ends with a great promise again. A glorious restoration is promised through God's Spirit. Friends, security and peace. The security and peace that God promises can only be experienced when our carnal ease and complacency is brought into ruin. That's why this pattern that Isaiah reveals about God's work is so important for us. God first ruins our self-sufficient ease and our self-confident complacency. And only when those are brought low to the dust, God by His Spirit comes in to renew that which has ruined. Let's pray. Father, would you make us a people who take your promises and your warnings seriously. May we hold on to your promises and may we tremble at your warnings. And may we rely fully on what you have promised to give us through Jesus Christ. Through Christ you have given us not only the redemption, but through Christ you have given us your Holy Spirit who is able to restore and to renew. Father, would you do that work of restoration? Would you do that work of renewal once again and do it in greater measures in our midst, in our congregation, in our lives, in our city, in our nation, in our world? We pray that you would do so in the name of Christ, through the, Holy, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.